We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Monday, October 30th, 2023, as we bring you a new episode. The Sox Machine Offseason Plan Project has already begun. It's been very active on the site. Great to see plans coming in and a wide variety of ideas on how to attack this offseason for the Chicago White Sox. Since tomorrow is Halloween, we thought about going trick or treating when looking at the upcoming MLB free agent class, picking a few players that might be a treat for the White Sox to sign or buyer beware, a trick. The World Series moves on to Arizona as the series is tied one game apiece. We'll share our thoughts about what has happened so far. There's actual White Sox news as they continue to add to Pedro Grafal's coaching staff. Now joining the White Sox is former Los Angeles Angels pitching coach Matt Wise. He'll now be the White Sox new bullpen coach. Plenty to discuss, so let's get started. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis and Jim Happy Halloween. What are the candy options for the trick-or-treaters at House Margulis? We really don't get much in the way of trick-or-treaters. We don't really, uh, Nashville is not a great city for sidewalks or well-lit streets. So the neighborhoods that tend to be popular are really popular. And the ones that aren't as well-lit or safe tend to be quieter, which I don't necessarily mind. Although we have a good neighborhood for it, so... Uh, in terms of kids and such. So we'll probably go around to the neighbor's house, say hello, and, you know, maybe, uh, you know, gather with them afterwards and watch nobody come. <laughs> but, you know, last year we did like a bonfire in the front yard for, you know, all the neighbors gathering there. So any kids who came through could just go to one yard and collect all the okay. candy there. But, uh, you know, maybe get like less than 10 visitors uh, over the course of an evening. Mm. So we just get the Costco pack, uh, whatever they have, and uh, go from there. Okay, got it, got it. See, I, I'm pretty, I, I usually go with the usual. So I've got Snickers, mm-hmm. I got Kit Kats, just in case of a parent's like my kid's got peanut allergies. So I do have something that doesn't have peanuts in it. And then uh, Take Five, that's my favorite. That's the last one that I'm passing out. If I have any leftover candy, I want the Take Fives to be left over. 
because that is my go-to. That that's my favorite of the Halloween candy. Yeah, we went to a trunk or treat uh, yesterday at the uh, curling club, uh, and uh, my kid is too young for candy still in terms of like really understanding what he wants. We give him a whole lot of sugar because he doesn't seem to ask for it. So we're like, great. Uh, but uh, yeah, he grabbed a couple of York peppermint patties, just unknowingly just grabbed them and put them in like, yes, good call. I will take those. I'll put them in the freezer and have a good time. <laughs> so yes, right now. Are, yeah, That is a good one. Yeah. This is the year though, for like just him being old enough to walk and enjoy participating, but not really understand the point of it, but also like just, Get some candy for the house. Get some uh, get some freezer candy going. <laughs> get some candy for dad. Uh, yeah, H- Halloween's great when you have kids or when you are in college. Outside of that, I- I'm pretty indifferent. But my favorite thing about the holidays passing out candy. Kim, my wife, she absolutely loves Halloween. So it is a thing at our house. More so than Christmas. Uh, but... Yeah, that's my favorite part is uh, passing out the candy. We're not crazy like our neighbors. I don't know if you have the 12 foot skeletons in anybody's front yard. Oh, yeah. Those are ridiculous. Yep. <laughs> yeah, we have down the street, we have basically, I don't know who they are you know, directly. I've waved to them hello, but uh, neighbors have said like they work for some kind of production company and so their house for Halloween. Like it starts like probably mid September and then every weekend is new layers <laughs> of skeletons climbing up the side of the house pounding on the windows corn stalks go up just yeah it's a it's a whole production then you know when it comes to christmas time holiday lights it's just like a couple inflatables in the yard so basically they save their entire storage space for halloween stuff and only halloween stuff all right i was gonna ask if they just keep it up for christmas and then (laughs) throw some wreaths on it Uh, But we all hope that you have a wonderful Halloween, especially for those that do enjoy it. Or if you're not really partaking in Halloween, I hope you all have a great time shopping the clearance racks on November 1st uh, and the Halloween candy racks. I already see that Target and a bunch of department stores are already setting up for Christmas, so tis the season for retail. When it comes to the Chicago White Sox, it's going to be some news uh, coming up in these few weeks here as we expect them to fill out the rest of their coaching staff before the offseason really picks up here. They still need to figure out who is going to be the hitting coach for the Chicago White Sox this upcoming offseason, but they did find a new bullpen coach. So after they moved Kurt Hasler out of the bullpen coaching role and back into minor league operations, The Chicago White Sox hired Matt Wise, the former Los Angeles Angels pitching coach, to be their new bullpen coach. Wise was initially hired as the Angels bullpen coach back in the 2020 shortened season, and then he became the interim pitching coach in 2021, and he served that role through this season. He was not being brought back to the Angels for the 2024 season, uh, Jim, I, there's a there were some really good questions in the comment section, SoxMachine.com. Uh, one, what does a bullpen coach do? And two, what do you think about this hire? Well, when it comes to the hire itself, I immediately thought, well, like Angels 2021, that's the year that Gene Watson was there, like his one year away from various roles in Kansas City. So I thought like, okay, there's the Gene Watson difference manifesting itself. When it comes to the bullpen coach, like it's hard to know exactly, I think, in terms of uh, what, like, say, Matt Wise's experience 
in Anaheim, both as pitching coach, bullpen coach will translate over to the White Sox because I think each team handles its situations a little bit differently in terms of how much, you know, where I guess the ultimate pitching calls come from, like with the White Sox implementing Brian Bannister. Like I'm not exactly sure how that's going to change Ethan Katz's duties. And so I'm not exactly sure how that's going to change what, yeah, I guess the bullpen coach's duties, formerly Kurt Hasler's duties. Uh, so like, that's kind of an open question. I'm looking forward to hearing, you know, as these uh, coaching staff hires flesh out and Chris gets talks to reporters, like, I hope that's a question that we hear uh, and and hear him say is like, you know, what's the order of operations now for the pitching staff banister to cats to wise. Uh, I think, yeah, I would say generally when it comes to the bullpen coach, they are there for, you know, getting guys ready for helping relay scouting reports for who they might be facing, preparing them for, um, you know, the, you know, being on the phone in terms of like, we're going to look to have these guys come in in the fifth inning, uh, maybe one out or first sign of trouble, who might that be? Prepare them for you know who they're gonna be facing. Uh, and we saw with the White Sox, like just how many guys, yeah, Aaron Bummer, I think would be probably the primary example coming in, like needing batters to find a groove and to you know locate the control and just not looking ready when they come out to the mound. And partially could be because of the arms the White Sox brought in, you know, tend to be like erratic. Um not necessarily erratic, you know, entirely, but just like lots of fastball movement, lots of sinkers, really nasty stuff, trying to get the barrel to hit the top of the ball. So they hit the ball right into the ground. Um, but the byproduct of that is sometimes it's hard to find the strike zone or you can get easily off kilter by trying to bury pitches, bury pitches. And all of a sudden you're bouncing them. And, uh, you know, your, your first pitch when you have a runner on third and one out, you know, brings the runner home on a wild pitch. So, you know, I think, the previous front office's emphasis on suppressing homers while getting strikeouts with like the nastiest stuff, uh, as we saw with Bummer and Joe Kelly and to a lesser extent, Kendall Graveman. I, I think that was part of the reason why maybe the relievers came out and looked so yeah, mismatched, I guess, for the moment at times. However, you know, with wise, like despite being slightly skeptical of anything Gene Watson's associated with just because he's with the Royals and didn't really have a whole lot to point to, I think I'm just happy that Hasler's gone. Nothing against him, but just he was there for a long time. He was there under Don Cooper. Uh, just it seemed like a part that could be changed out based on the underperformance they got from the bullpen. So may as well try somebody new. This is an opportunity with Bannister coming in to uh, rethink the way you approach different sectors of the pitching. And that's you know one obvious one is to uh, – uh, take a look at how these guys are being warmed up in the bullpen and prepared for individual outings um, reports of like how they look on back-to-back -back days. You know, perhaps that's something that a bullpen coach might have in mind in terms of just, you know, how do these guys feel uh, you real feel reports from the bullpen uh, for, you know, what kind of uh, impact they'll be able to provide there. There's a, I think a lot, a big Avenue for, improvements when it came to the relievers based on how little they got out of their overinvestment in the bullpen. So sure. Bring in Matt wise. I do like the idea of continuing to add from other organizations to the white Sox, either the coaching staff or the front office. This has been something we've been asking for. Now we've been asking hiring from organizations that have had lots of success <laughs> uh, right now, Josh Barfield and Brian Bannister, are pretty much the only guys that have had success with other organizations. But when it comes to the pitching front, you know, speaking of Bannister and now Matt wise, 
it's a it's new set of eyes on what the White Sox currently have on hand, where it's not all dependent on Ethan Katz to decide who fits what roles, who is where they are in their progression or in their development coming to this 2024 season. So I am curious when spring training rolls around what Matt Wise thinks. Again, I think a big conversation that needs to happen uh, this offseason between Bannister and Katz, and I guess we include Matt Wise, is what do you do with Michael Kopech? Because if Bannister and Katz and Grafal and even Chris Getz, if those four decide, if they sit down in the room, that I think we want Michael Kopech to start the season out of the bullpen, well, then it's up to Matt Wise to help coach up Michael Kopech and get him to regain that mindset that he had back in 2021 when Kopech did make spot starts. That was when the doubleheaders were just seven innings. Uh, so if he could only give you three innings or four innings, boom, he took care of half the game for you. And he was electric in those starts. It gave me hope that, hey, he's going to be the frontline starter we all thought he could be. And then two years later, here we are still having this conversation. Is Kopech a starting pitcher or not? But no, make no mistake, Kopech was great out of the bullpen for the White Sox in 2021. And if that is what he's going to be moving forward, they could still use that kind of guy in the bullpen. So that's where I'm mm-hmm. curious about this particular hiring. Again, it's another guy outside of the White Sox organization. No ties to the current Chicago White Sox organization. So it's somebody that will have fresh eyes, fresh perspective, and insight on what the White Sox actually have, and let's see how that impacts as far as decision-making. And he might have, like, Peter principled out with the Angels. Like, maybe they brought him as a bullpen coach, got forced into the pitching coach role, either wasn't quite ready for it, or just, you know, know, whether it's the Angels' dysfunction, making it hard for any coach to look good, or maybe just not quite an MLB-caliber pitching coach, but maybe bullpen coach is where he's supposed to end up. So... You know, versus like having a situation where you bring in Ethan Katz, who was an assistant pitching coach with the Giants, to come over to be the White Sox top guy. You're catching a guy on the way down a little bit, and maybe he's finding his right role. So uh, he's been pressed into more duties, and perhaps like it's a case of like having somebody who's slightly overqualified to be a bullpen coach. And that's fine because I think when it comes to the White Sox, they tend to err on the side of being underqualified and hoping they grow into it. Versus like, here's a case of just, you know, Bannister is one uh, and Wise might be another in terms of like, they're already prepared for the job that they have. And now it's just a matter of like, will they fit and will the talent be enough to work with to where they actually look like they're making a difference? All right. So the White Sox, they have the pitching side taken care of with the coaching staff. Again, it'll still be Ethan Katz and now it's Matt Wise. Helping out Pedro Grafal. Pedro Grafal still needs to figure out who is going to be the hitting coach or hitting coaches the White Sox will have for the upcoming season. Who was left over on the hitting side? No, I think that's on the, at the major league coaching staff. I think it's, you know, it's completely clear. Comes the hitting coaches. Like, that's what I'm wondering. Like, I think, you know, maybe is Devin DeYoung still around? I know uh, Ryan Johansson left, but... There might be a, a clean, cleanish. I think like Cam Seitzer was still around. Like none of the hitting coaches at the minor league level have been replaced yet, like at the individual affiliates, but that usually comes out like in a big roster in January, the whole organizational coaching depth charts. And so like if changes are made, they usually don't resonate enough to matter. Like Nikki Delmonico is still around as far as I know, but like those tend to not be revealed until January. So 
if we are seeing like a new top-down approach to hitting where the major league coaches or whether it's like a Brian Bannister type uh, who is not wearing a uniform uh, with the White Sox, but is you know, kind of setting the agenda for the whole organization, like that would be the time to you start at the top with the assistant, your hitting coach, assistant hitting coach, and then like go down to the affiliates. And then maybe there are some new roving instructors as well. So I think I'm treating it as like a pretty clear slate because uh, none of the um, you know hitting coaches with the White Sox affiliates really seem like difference makers you know part of it's the talent they had uh and but just they didn't seem like they were ascendant or um transcendental in any way so like i would assume that if there is a sea change with how the white Sox approach hitting they might be vulnerable uh or they might be reassigned to lower levels or just might be completely up in the air uh when it comes to where they might open the season in 2024 got it got it okay well again we're still waiting to see who's going to be the primary hitting coach for the Chicago White Sox in 2024, but the coaching staff is filling out. Jim and I are going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors, but coming after the break, we're going to talk about the World Series as it shifts from Arlington, Texas to Phoenix, Arizona, and play trick-or-treat with the MLB free agent class next on the Sox Machine Podcast. When I saw the Milwaukee Bucks make that big trade with Portland for Damian Lillard, I immediately went on game time to see when they were playing the Chicago Bulls. Saw it was on November 30th, and game time had great seats in the 300 level right at center court in the United Center. Great tickets at a great price. I couldn't pass up the opportunity. Buying tickets shouldn't be stressful. Use game time to purchase your tickets. Game time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for sports, music, comedy, and theater near you they've got killer deals on last minute tickets and their best price guarantee helps eliminate stressing over tickets if you find tickets in the same section and even row for less money game time will credit you 110 percent of the difference that's why game time is the fastest growing ticketing app in the country download the game time app create your account and get 20 dollars off your first purchase using our promo code socks machine Terms and conditions apply. Again, create an account and use our promo code SOXMACHINE for $20 off your first ticket purchase. Game time. Last-minute tickets. Lowest prices. Guaranteed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
We'll go back to the Sox Machine podcast and the World Series. Games three, four, and five are upcoming this week in Phoenix, Arizona, as the Arizona Diamondbacks now host. The series is tied one game apiece. And if you missed out on the World Series so far, game two was a pitcher's duel for a while, and then it became a laugher late as the Arizona Diamondbacks just really beat up on the lesser pitchers for the Texas Rangers. Upcoming free agents like Andrew Heaney and Martin Perez, they did not pitch very well. Uh, the failed starters that have been moved to the bullpen that Bruce Bochy uses when the game seems to be out of hand or it's not looking great uh, made it even more out of hand as the Diamondbacks won game 2-9-1. If you didn't watch that game on Saturday, uh, I don't blame you. It was, it was a little bit on the boring side. If you did not watch game one because you were thinking, oh, man, Rangers, Diamondbacks, this World Series is going to be boring. Dude, Jim, Game 1, what a way to start this World Series. Back and forth, that was very exciting. And, you know, I remember as far as the early set of games between the Astros and Phillies last year. But this one is going to stick in my mind for a while, especially Corey Seager tying the game with his two-run shot. What a bomb, what a moment. And then Adalas Garcia, who can't help but get hit uh, on a hand, thinking like, oh my gosh, uh, his hand is broken, only to come, you know, turn around later in the game and hit the walk-off homer in extra innings. I, I think for this World Series, for so many people who are lamenting that this is not a sexy or exciting World Series matchup, I think we're off to a great start. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I think there's a little bit of, disenchantment maybe with like the fifth and sixth seeds being in the world series and not feeling like you're crowning the best team. Whereas like if the Braves were there or the Orioles or even the Astros based on their reputation, uh, the Phillies based on having been there the previous year, like you could understand like the arguments for like feeling like the best team or one of the two, three, four best teams from the regular season were able to like, hoist the trophy at the end of the year. And you're not quite getting that with this world series. Like their flaws were evident over the course of 162 games and they won more than they lost. And when we came to the national league wildcard, like that's basically all you had to do to get into the postseason was win more than you lose. Uh, whereas the ale, the bar was a bit higher, but if you can set that aside and just look at it like, Hey, this is just one more series, last opportunity to watch baseball. Uh, for the entire year like it is a good variety of talent on the field like you are seeing like the power uh, that the Rangers have and you're seeing like the I, I think small ball is maybe like a little bit simple for the way the Diamondbacks play because it's not like all bunting and such and they do run but like their ability to sequence and have like uh, you know be able to survive without hitting homers by like hitting the gaps uh, taking extra bases when it comes to uh, balls that get past the outfielders like uh, that's its own brand of power. It's not small. It's not long. It's like medium ball. And I think that's uh, a brand of baseball. that's very appealing to watch because there's a lot of action, a lot of uh, people in motion uh, when it comes to any given play. And that's, I think what fans were hoping for when they made these pa uh, changes with the, um, you know, increasing the stolen base with uh, the pitch clock, trying to get it back to like that 1980s baseball style play where you had some fast teams, uh, making things happen. You had some power teams that could also just, you know, not have to rely on the stolen base. So you are seeing that a little bit in this world series, even if the strikeout rate is still high, I think across baseball and there are more strikeouts and hits. So that's, I think very appealing about this series. And 
it seems like Arizona with the way they play makes John Smoltz a little easier to take because like, you know, he, they provide the like old school action or like the constant motion action that like keeps him engaged and keeps him from complaining about like how teams sell out for the, uh, you know, home run too much, even if all the numbers point to like the home run being the easiest way to win games in the postseason. Like, I think he's been better. Uh, Joe Davis has had a little more, bit more life in his voice because Smoltz is a little bit happier. And it's not just this uh, kind of uh, very dry, uh, sometimes morose sounding booth. And like before uh, Seager's homer, like Smoltz actually called it. He said like uh, when Seager came to the plate, because I think the last pitch to Semyon was a high fastball that missed. And yeah, Smoltz came, uh, or Seager strode to the plate, and Smoltz said, well, if they come with the high fastball here, they got to watch out because Seager's swing has been on plane with that. And sure enough, first pitch, high fastball, just out of the zone, he tomahawks out to right. So, like, Smoltz was on it. So I think uh, as much as some fans, especially, like, I would say analytically-oriented fans, might roll their eyes a bit about the way the Diamondbacks are talked about, I think the way they play baseball makes John Smoltz a little bit easier to take, which I will take because, like, the thing I don't, yeah, I guess my complaints about postseason baseball in general are too manager focused. And then uh, John Smoltz kind of being heavily involved and complaining about the way things are. And with the way the action has unfolded, like I haven't seen too much second guessing for the managers. I think it's been very focused on what the players are and aren't doing, which is how I prefer it. And uh, Smoltz has been, yeah, the games are moving briskly enough and there's enough action to where like you're just not hearing Smoltz complain about the way the game's played. Yeah, game one actually lasted more than four hours. That was the quickest four-hour baseball game because uh, I was just so thoroughly entertained uh, watching game one as it went into extra innings. So game three, again, is going to be on Monday at 7.03 p.m. Central Time. It's at Chase Field. Max Scherzer against Brandon Fott. Uh, I always want to say fat because his name's P-F-A-A-D-T. Uh, one of the more unique names. Uh, total ends of the spectrum here. Scherzer, veteran, pitches many postseason games. He is not new to the World Series. And the Diamondbacks going with the rookie. The The big question for me is that because you are playing three consecutive days, uh, neither the Diamondbacks or the Rangers are very deep on the starting pitching front. So games four and five, to me, are going to be where it gets a little wild here. Like, we might see a bullpen game in the World Series, and then I'm going to be curious on how John Smotes thinks about that particular, or just what the general baseball community, everyone online, thinks about uh, is that type of setup as neither team is all that deep or wants to be that deep on the starting pitching front. But here at game three, uh, that we'll be somewhat previewing here, that's going to be happening on Monday night. For Max Scherzer here, Jim, I, I think he needs to show some life. I know he dealt with a pretty significant injury this season after getting traded from the Mets to the Rangers. He missed some time, and then he showed enough to the Rangers to prove to come back at the end of the regular season that he was fine and fit enough to pitch in the postseason. He's not been that great in the postseason here. And while doing the Sox Machine offseason plan project, this is always a time for me to check out like all the contracts in Major League Baseball. Max Scherzer's the highest paid player next year, and it's like $43 million. 
And I'm just wondering if he's at the end of the road here and maybe the Rangers regret a little bit taking on so much of Scherzer's contract, but they won't regret it if he can be lights out in game three. Uh, it it might be a Hall of Fame career for Max Scherzer. I, I should change that. It's probably yeah. a Hall of Fame career for Max Scherzer. Uh, what are you hoping to see or expecting to see in game three for the veteran? I think they'd be happy with like four good innings. And then when it comes to the second half of the game, uh, especially like third time through going to the bullpen, like it seemed like based on the way they were operating from a deficit and didn't want to like throw good money after bad using up their high leverage options when Merrill Kelly was dealing. And like, they figured, I, I imagine Bochi was like, we'll see if we'll make, you know, we'll put a dent in Merrill Kelly before going to our high leverage options and like showing them, exposing them for a game that they can't make a difference in and then having to use them to back up Scherzer and not ask too much from him and then have a bullpen game potentially after that. So it seems like Bochi was lining up his options to prepare for short starts, including Scherzer. And based on the way he's looked and his second start was a little bit better than his first, I think in terms of how he came out of the gates, you're, I guess Bochi's help hoping that he's, uh, you know, building up still uh, cause he did, have to be thrown into the fire and didn't really have the, you know, what normally you'd get like a rehab start or two and uh, work your way up. And right now it looks like through two starts, maybe he's rehabbing now and is, is closer to hundred percent than he's been in a while. So based on him being on a full rest, the idea would be like, yeah, six quality innings, quality start from Max Scherzer. Our offense comes back to life and we can take, uh, you know, six innings and, and be, thrilled with it but i imagine if it's gonna be a closer game than that or if you know scherzer takes his lumps early probably four and then they 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 pull the plug and go to the bullpen game because they'll be plenty rested between avoiding them in game two and then having the uh, day off in between yeah and we'll see the top of the lineup i mean corbin carroll Catel Marte. Catel Marte's got the longest hitting streak in postseason history for the Diamondbacks. Like I, I really like as far as this Diamondbacks team, we we talk a lot about the up and coming teams like the Baltimore Orioles. They proved it. They won over a hundred games this year and they won the American League East. They are going to be, I think, a pretty popular pick to win the 2024 World Series. Uh the Cincinnati Reds are coming. The Pittsburgh Pirates are coming. But here's the Diamondbacks. A lot of young talent here, and they're here. Uh, they're in the World Series. They're tied up one game apiece. I'm sure Diamondbacks fans feel like, man, if we could have just held on in game one, be up 2-0 in the World Series coming home, this might be a short World Series. Uh, but it's been a very exciting one, and I can't wait to watch games three, four, and five. Yeah, uh, when it comes to Josh Barfield and like his potential impact, uh, I am curious about like how they got Gabriel Moreno or just – you know, he's been really impressive. I know how they got him. They traded Dalton Varsho for him, but like ju just all the steps involved in both uh, producing enough athletic outfield talent, like surefire above average outfielders uh, to where like you could trade a Dalton Varsho and roll your uh, dice with like uh, Guriel, Thomas McCarthy across the outfield and, and like what you have. Um, so there's that. Uh, then you have like, uh, you know, Tommy Pham too coming in, providing outfielders to uh, rotate with. So having the outfield depth there to be, have a Varsho to trade for Moreno and then just like how Moreno went from being like an interesting young player, um, you know, 
might be a year away from contributing to, to all of a sudden, like being the guy in the second yeah. half of the year and into the postseason, like both offensively and defensively, like his throws are really impressive. Uh, the power's good. The, the bat control is good. The pop time is great. Like everything's coming to play to where like, this guy is a really good catcher in all regards. And it happened so suddenly, like didn't take that transition year really to be a six month catcher, a, a first string catcher, all of a sudden, like he was it. And now there aren't that many catchers you take over him based on the way he's played over the last month. So if I'm the white Sox and Chris Katz, like, how did that happen? How can we get a Moreno? How can we get like <laughs> trade assets to acquire a Moreno who's blocked elsewhere? Uh, that's what I want to know. And then like, you look at the job that Brent Strom has done cobbling together a pitching staff to where like fought comes in and is like, a decent postseason starter kind of out of nowhere. Uh, if the White Sox are trying to figure out how to patch together a pitching staff that might be better than it looks or greater than the sum of its parts, like Strom, based on his experience with the Astros, what he's done with the Diamondbacks, like uh, have Barfield, like ask him about like how that happened and how that affected the way the Whites or the Diamondbacks produced arms for him to work with. And how that might affect uh, just Ethan Katz and Brian Bester, how they go about it or giving them stuff to work with. Like, that's what I want to know from Barfield uh, as the uh, Diamondbacks maybe win a World Series, but even if they don't, like what they've been able to accomplish over the last month or two in terms of like really producing a complete team. Yeah, because that's a good point that you make. It's There's one part of Josh Barfield's job, which is helping redevelop the way that the White Sox develop players, right? And that's going to take time. Mm -hmm. That's the part where it, it takes time because you need to add talent to your development system and then you need to see results on the field to give you confidence and to give other teams confidence as well that these guys are going to be major leaguers, whether they play for the Chicago White Sox or they're targeted in future trades. Uh, that part takes time, but the identifying other premium talents from other organizations and pulling off trades that way to add that young talent to your team, especially because the Blue Jays for a while have been known to have multiple major league ready catchers to be able to acquire one of them, plug and play and watch them succeed in the major league level. I'm totally with you, Jim. How do you do that? Because for the last decade, the White Sox have incredibly struggled at that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Lengthy adjustment periods. Like last, you know, last year with the Blue Jays and his audition, he was good. And now like over the course of the season with the Diamondbacks, like he's turned into great. And yeah, that, I mean, he had the prospect stock to where it's not completely a surprise, but just how smoothly it happened, I think has to surprise everybody at least a little bit. Again, it's been a fun World Series so far. Games three, four, and five, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday this week should be a dandy again. Games four and five are going to be interesting because of the lack of starting pitching for both ball clubs. Th those games could get a bit wild in the desert. All right, and then our final topic in this episode, because it is Halloween, let's play a little trick or treating here. And uh, we'll be referencing the World Series here as there are some players that are participating in the World Baseball, uh, not the World Baseball Classic, but in the Fall Classic that are going to be free agents and already being targeted in Sox Machine offseason plant projects. And I'm just curious about these. Some of them I'm actually interested in. Some of them I I'm a bit iffy. So, Jim, let, let, let's play this game here. A treat is someone that we think could be a positive addition to the Chicago White Sox. They have attributes that could help the team. A trick is buyer beware. 
while on paper they may have performed well in 2023 because of but because of other circumstances age regression or dead cat bounces it may not work with the Chicago White Sox. We've seen plenty of these free agent type of signings in the past completely fall flat on the White Sox face and then they're scrambling and they're spending bad money. So let's get started here, Jim. And uh, we talked about the catching position. We both think that the White Sox need to add a catcher to help out Corey Lee or even Carlos Perez or probably both because many teams are going to roll with three or four catchers during a 162-game season. And the one guy that I am very interested in, and if you follow me on social media, I've been mentioning that the White Sox could use him, and that is Mitch Garver. And Mitch Garver hit a home run in game two. Mitch Garver had a 370 on base percentage. He slugged 500 for the Texas Rangers this year. His walk rate was well above 12%. His weighted runs created plus was 138. And he could catch. And that's what the White Sox need. Someone that's a dependable hitter. And that could help behind the home plate and share those duties with probably Corey Lee for the upcoming season. Jim, is Mitch Garver a trick or treat free agent possibility for the White Sox? This one I wrestle with because I don't know how much he can catch. With like Jonah Heim there, like obviously Heim's the better defensive. Well, he's he's a better defensive catcher, but also Garver's been so beat up that they want to preserve his bats uh, to where like if he doesn't have to catch all the games or even so many of the games, like they won't make him because they're perfectly happy with Heim there. Uh, they also brought in Austin Hedges to uh, help out uh, later in the year. So, like, um, you know, Garver really hasn't been forced to catch. Like, uh, he didn't really qualify when it came to framing runs. He's had, like, groin issues, shoulder issues, forearm issues over the last few years. So, like, I don't know how much of a catching load he can be expected to cover. Like, if he's been preserved well enough to catch 60 games – I would consider him a treat if he's somebody who like is more of a third catcher at this point, you have him at DH and uh, he's somebody you can plug in and, and you feel like you're not uh, afraid of pinch hitting or pinch running for a catcher later in the game. Cause you know, Garver can slide over there if need be. Uh, then I think he's, uh, you know, more of a trick for what the white Sox need, or, or at least, you know, other teams can better deploy a Mitch Garver than the White Sox can, and he'd be kind of wasted on what exactly they need from somebody they have in mind for a second catcher. Yeah, he's going to be part of my offseason plan because the other catcher that we're going to be talking about here, trick or treat, is Gary Sanchez. And to add on to like Mitch Garver real quick before we talk about Sanchez, Garver is 33 years old. I did not know he was that old. So when it comes to a possible contract, I, I think why he could be a good target for the White Sox is that I think it would only take one or two years to sign him. And that fits perfectly, depending on what the White Sox want. Maybe Corey Lee figures out on how to hit, but what we saw at the end of 2023 suggests that no, Corey Lee is not a major league hitter um, by any stretch of the imagination. And that's going to be a problem no matter what Pedro Grafal says. And Edgar Caro still needs time. Uh, he showed some promise in Birmingham, but he's only, what, 21 years old? Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe another year in the minor leagues before we could seriously consider him being the starting catcher for the Chicago White Sox after they acquired him from the Los Angeles Angels. So a Mitch Garver stopgap solution here 
I think could work for the White Sox. Defensively, if he is not that good, or if he's just average because his pop time is two seconds, his framing runs, blocking runs is at average or slightly below average. If he doesn't help you defensively, okay, but offensively, I still think he could help the Chicago White Sox. And I still think that he can be an 800 or better OPS type of hitter, which the White Sox need more of those other than just Luis Robert for this upcoming season. Gary Sanchez, maybe thought dead in the water, and then he signs with San Diego and not dead in the water. He really provided an impact to the Padres. In 75 games played, Sanchez was worth 1.7 war. He had a 111 weighted runs, created a plus. He slugged 492. Uh, his fielding run value, according to Baseball Savant, was three. His framing was two. At his pop time, 1.9 seconds. That's really good. And he was two runs better than average catching base runners, especially at second base. So defensively, power, but on base percentage, Sanchez had an OBP of 288. He's not known to be a high batting average or a high walk type of guy. So Jim, Gary Sanchez, two years younger than Mitch Garver at age 31. Is this a trick or treat type of free agent target? I think it's a treat. Uh, he strikes me a little bit like he's kind of hard to read because with the Yankees, there is so much baggage there. Like his blocking numbers were atrocious. His framing numbers were atrocious. Like as his bat became less special and became just like an ordinary power bat and the average lagged, um, you know, Aaron Boone started playing other catchers over him. Um, like Austin Romine was a popular point of contention. Like you're benching Gary Sanchez for Austin Romine. It's just like, well, pitchers hate throwing to Gary Sanchez because he doesn't block anything they throw. And when you look it up, uh, baseball savant, like, yeah, his numbers are, are cobalt blue when it comes to just <laughs> uh, the defensive stats with the Yankees. But since then, like, it seems like he's had a hard time finding a stable job or is always like the last catcher chosen. But the numbers reflect like, yeah, he's like an ordinary, decent catcher, like a real catcher. He frames okay. He blocks okay. He throws okay. He hits for some power. Uh, the walks are really the, you know, and, and having OBP that starts with a two is really his biggest flaw. If you can set aside his reputation and trust the numbers, he has made some significant changes in terms of how he sets up behind the plate and how he catches and how he works with the pitcher. So he strikes me as somebody like if the White Sox went through a whole winter and signed him to then relegate Corey Lee or Carlos Perez to second catcher duties or like halftime catcher duties to where they're like 80, 80 games or like 70, 70, 20. Uh, sure. That'd be fine. Like it would strike me as Wellington Castillo a little bit. Uh, yeah. When the White Sox signed him two years, like I thought that signing was okay. And then he had the suspension that basically ruined everything and kind of, uh, well, you needed games from the guy and you're not getting games anymore. So what's the point? But the signing on space was okay. The numbers, you know, the, the framing numbers turned out to be not that good, but he did have an upswing. The White Sox were signing or buying into thinking like, oh, he solved his receiving issue. So it wasn't that they were signing a bad framing catcher and thought like we can fix him. They thought that Castillo had been fixed, but then missed time. The framing numbers regressed and then turned out that he didn't work out. But I would treat Sanchez along the same way in terms of like, not being like an exciting signing, but being better than the White Sox have and like not ruining any plans for 
you know, should an Adam Hackenberg be a little bit ahead of schedule and be able to step into the catching mix in 2024 before Edgar Caro, cross your fingers, hopefully takes over. Uh, that I think would be a fine placeholder signing. So with those standards in mind, I would call him a treat. The White Sox could use more power. And I think they go with either Garver or Sanchez. I'd be happier about that than trading for Salvador Perez. Uh, where Salvador Perez, we talked about the contract. It It's so much money. And for those that are participating in the offseason plan project, you know that you need almost every single dollar just to get a 26-man roster <laughs> for the 2024 season, especially with how much that you're going to need to spend uh, on the starting pitching front to fill out a rotation, that $20 million on Salvador Perez is way too much. But with Garver and Sanchez, I think that's more in the spending habits for Jerry Reinstorp, Jim. Yeah, and I mean, like, where they are. Like, and I think if they sign a Mitch Garver, and, like, Garver is somebody who has that alternating year thing to where, like, it seems like in odd-numbered years, he's above average, and then even years uh, tends to either regress or the body, you know, betrays him. So, like, next year's an even number year. So, like, that's part of the reason why, like, a little bit apprehensive, even if it's kind of silly. I'm just afraid of, like... Right now, the Rangers are using him well as a primary DH and then sometimes catcher, whereas if the White Sox ask too much from him, that's when his body will fall apart and the White Sox will get uh, 20 games behind the plate when they're hoping for 80 or more. So that's why I think I'm a little bit more confident in Sanchez based on what he would cost versus Garver coming off a World Series team, being a plus contributor for them whether at DH or behind the plate to where like his price might go up and the White Sox might not get what they want from him, uh, which is innings behind the plate. All right. So let's move to the corner outfield. And uh, again, trying to look at guys that would fit into Jerry Reinsdorf's spending habits. Uh, let's take a look at the very ever popular Jock Peterson uh, when it comes to the White Sox, whether that's Rick Hahn complaining that, White Sox Twitter or social media ruined a possible signing or trade for Jock Peterson, but Peterson last year in 121 games, not very impressive overall, 0.6 war season, but his weighted runs created plus was 111. His on-base percentage was 348. His slugging took a hit. It was 416 as he did have, he walked better than 13% of the time. So Jock Peterson could help with the on-base percentage issue that the White Sox offense has and maybe hitting that guarantee Ray field will help resurrect some of those power numbers because he's so pull-heavy, and Jock Peterson is 32 years old. Uh, but defensively, Jock Peterson is what we call a liability, no matter where you put him on the field. So, Jim, is he a trick or treat for the White Sox? I would say he's a trick. Like, it reminds me a little bit of, like, Rick Hahn saying, we finally got Andrew Benintendi. And then it turns out that, like... <laughs> you know, not the Benintendi they wanted to draft or whatever. And Peterson seemed like the moment to sign him was two years ago. And then like last year he got the qualifying offer. So he wasn't available, but uh, the giants have seen diminishing returns. Like his second half, I'm looking at a number right, right now, but his second half numbers were terrible. I believe uh, yeah. Dropped off in the second half, especially like September 676. OPS when the Giants were pushing, like he didn't uh, really respond. I didn't realize he was the highest paid Giants player, uh, which surprised me just because the qualifying offer being 19 million. Like, I guess that's in terms of annual salary. Like he was earning the most. And there was a Susan Slusser article from the San Francisco Chronicle talking about like how he'd gained weight 
over the course of the season and how that was creating a whole lot of uh, discontent among yeah, social media, but also like his defensive numbers being bad, his second, you know, wearing down the second half and like uh, circumstantial evidence pointing to like, well, it's not helping if he's gaining weight, if it's uh, yeah, affecting the way the Giants can use him and the kind of value they're getting from him. So like all the arrows point to like, if I'm the White Sox and I'm not going to be that good, and if Jock Peterson is somebody who is maybe over the course of a season uh, has trouble either staying motivated or like is just somebody who is going to look unmotivated, even if it just the way hit, you know, some guys lose weight over the course of a season and to, to their detriment, some guys gain weight uh, to their detriment. So like, it's not necessarily a smoking gun in and of itself, but it's just like, if the White Sox aren't going to be good, I don't see Peterson being an enjoyable signing for White Sox fans. If it's like, well, he's bad. And also like, he's offering nothing in the field. And like, as White Sox fans know from like the, all sorts of people, you know, Lance Lynn, Eloy Jimenez, Yohan Mikata. Like if there's a body issue to find, like White Sox fans will pick at it. So for all of those reasons uh, to, I'm sounding like Mark Cuban on Shark Tank for those reasons, <laughs> I'm out uh, a trick. Uh, maybe Jack Peterson discovers Rico Benes and he's a 300 pound right fielder. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm with thick, you. Yeah. <laughs> a little 108 thick. Absolutely. Uh, so we're both out on Jack Peterson, but how about the guy who had four hits in game two of the world series, Tommy Pham and Pham again, split time between the Mets and the Diamondbacks. He played 129 games in 2023, 1.8 war. 110 weighted runs created plus slugged 446. He had a 328 on base percentage. His walk rate was close to 10%. And as far as his fielding run value, pretty neutral. Zero runs. The thing with Tommy Pham is that he's going to be 36 years old uh, going into next season. And he's been on multiple teams. And I think we are starting to see the other side. I mean, there was some off the field type of stuff. He got stabbed, leaving a, a strip club in San Diego a couple years ago. But now you're hearing about how great of a teammate he is. And he provides that type of veteran presence in the clubhouse. That's really helped a young team like the Arizona Diamondbacks. But again, he's 36 years old going into next season. So Jim, trick or treat, signing Tommy Pham to hope help out at right field for the white Sox. Regrettably, I say trick. I mean, if they signed him, like I, it would be okay. Like I want to see where this goes. Uh, Fam's been on seven teams over the last six years, which is both like a point for and against him. I think it's a point against him because like, Oh, teams learn they can live without him or maybe they get tired of him. On the other hand, like teams want him. you know, teams who with ambition with, uh, you know, thinking they can, you know, maybe the Reds weren't a team with ambition, but the Red Sox were, and maybe the Mets fell apart, but the Diamondbacks found a use for them. So like every team, uh, you know, even if it doesn't work out in the first half, like teams in the second half come knocking because like he does have a reputation around the game of being intense. And sometimes it works for, and sometimes it works against, but as we're seeing with the Diamondbacks right now, like they like having him around and they consider him to be like a plus contributor for a team with that style of play. So I like that about him. I think what my reservation would be is he's pretty much left field only. Uh, like he hasn't really played any right field at all. It's the numbers have been bad when he's played right field, but teams haven't really thrown him out there. Center field, like he's been bad, like I think recently, and just teams haven't been putting him out there. He's been mostly left field and Andrew Benintendi's already there. And like 
that I think is why Benintendi was such a strange signing for the White Sox Warriors because like you can always find a left fielder. Like I shouldn't say always because the White Sox haven't, but like I think the White Sox <laughs> standards for left fielder were so warped because of throwing first baseman out there that uh, they realized like, oh, we got to we gotta really pay for a left fielder. And like there are guys like Fam who just kind of bounce around but can perfectly adequately fill that hole for a year. And I think with Fam, you're thrilled if he's your worst outfielder because like he's okay to good. And if he's on one of those good streaks, all of a sudden your outfield looks really dangerous. If you want him to be your second best outfielder, like in the case of Luis Roberts uh, being injured, like you're hoping he's your best outfielder, like he won't meet those expectations. So I think he's somebody who's situationally driven to be a plus contributor. And I don't think the White Sox have that situation. So I would love if the White Sox were like good enough to make good use of a Tommy fam, but as somebody who's in his late thirties and can only play a left field, I don't think that situation is with the white Sox. Well, were you in or out on fam though? I mean, you make really good points. I mean, if he, if you don't think he could play right field, that it's a trick, but then again, the white Sox are throwing Gavin sheets out there. Uh, so <laughs> I just can Tommy fam still run down a fly ball. If the answer is yes, take it. I, you know, that's better than, what we have seen in right field for the White Sox. I mean, we've seen some really dismal play in right field. Yeah. Uh, so even if he's below league average as a right fielder, that might actually be improvement. And then what you're hoping for with Tommy Pham is just a level of consistency day in, day out, both in the clubhouse and on the field, that could maybe be a good role model, a good leader, a good example for some of these White Sox players or the clicks that are already still existing. The White Sox just don't care. Yeah, like calling out under under efforts, uh, that would be. I would like to see Fam and Jock Peterson in the same outfield. Like sign them both. Yeah, let's do it. So they could fight. That's oh for, yes, the fantasy football yeah. thing, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> for the for that. the content for the for those of us slinging the tent, uh, I, I'd be all for that tandem in right field. Heck yeah, let's do it. Okay, that I want. That is a treat. out on yeah, out on either in on both. Yes. Absolutely. Oh, great call. Uh, so I'm going to say, I'm going to say trick on Tommy fam, but I, I, I'm with you. I see the positives. If the White Sox did sign Tommy fam, I, I do think that he can be a positive influence. You just need to curb your expectations on how big of an impact Tommy fam would provide to the White Sox. Uh, the next guy entering it, like I mentioned, age 35 season fast start last year, then got hurt, missed Lots of time, uh, but came back, still put up pretty big offensive numbers. And that's Adam Duvall. Now, Adam Duvall does not walk. 303 on base percentage, walk rate is 6%. It sounds like a White Sox player already. But Adam Duvall slugged 531 last year. He had 24 doubles and 21 homers in 92 games. And you want to talk about pull hitters. Adam Duvall is that guy. He's all about pulling the ball in the air, which warms my heart. And the White Sox could use that type of hitter in their lineup. Jim, trick or treat on Adam Duvall? He's a treat. Like, that would be somebody I would be excited to see. Like, despite his flaws, like, he doesn't help the right-handed, doesn't walk, strikes out too much bunch. But he plays good defense in right field like or like i i would assume he plays good defense in right field i should put that qualifier on there because he's played more center than right and he's not that great of a center fielder but like the red Sox put him out in center field and he wasn't you know um 
bottom scraping bat out there. So I would assume that he would have the capacity to play right when he's played right. And he's played there a fair amount in his career. Like he's been okay there. Like he's been really good, like all-star, or I should say gold glove, good in left field. He's been slightly below average in center. And then like he's played some right and has been like sturdy above average. So I think like, if you're looking for the White Sox to sign a real right fielder who can hit the ball over the fence, he crosses, you know, two out of the big three flaws uh, that the White Sox have from a position player standpoint. He just doesn't walk, strikes out too much, so he doesn't help you there. But you're not going to find, like, the guy who crosses every single item on the White Sox list off unless you're signing Cody Bellinger. And if the White Sox don't play at that level uh, in free agency, then, like, Duvall you know, brings more to the table than he takes off. And if you sign him for one year, he's somebody who like, maybe you flip him for somebody interesting at the deadline. You know, maybe like Oscar Colas proves that he's worth every day, right field reps over the course of the season. And maybe you feel comfortable turning the position over to him. And, you know, basically the White Sox treat with Duvall, they treat Colas like they should have done last year, which is block him until he proves that like, he's too much of a force to keep down in Charlotte, but instead they made him plan a, and that didn't work out so well. So I think unlike Peterson to where it felt like uh, that moment is gone and uh, age is taking too much of a toll. I think with Duvall, the skills are there and the strengths are there. And I think you could run the same playbook, which is start on play him in right field, have him as a backup for Luis Robert when he needs a day off. And you should be in decent shape defensively and you have some upside for when he connects and that's good enough to improve with what the White Sox had run out there for the last couple of years in right field. Yeah. I mean, he's hit, he hit 38 homers that had 113 RBIs in 2021 uh, when he left Atlanta for Miami and then got traded from Miami to the Braves and helped the Braves win the world series in 2021 as he hit a pretty big homer, a couple homers in the world series uh, and this past year with Boston, again, he only played 92 games, uh, but 21 homers and 24 doubles and even two triples as well. So you could run a little bit uh, in 92 games. It's that type of slugging that the White Sox really do need in their lineup. So again, kind of like the catchy situation with Garver and Sanchez. I'm in on both. Fam or Duvall, if you're looking to add a one-year type of veteran presence bat into the lineup, I'm in on both as well. Uh, so for Adam Duvall, yeah, let's, I, I'll be in the treat side as well. I was last year. He still had more than 20 homers despite a, an injury and, uh, yeah, he could rake. He could really help out the White Sox lineup. Now let's move over to starting pitching. I picked three starting pitchers here and he just pitched a game two of the world series, kind of a weird pitching line as, uh, you could tell Jordan Montgomery was clearly grinding as he pitched game seven of the ALCS against Houston to help the Rangers win the American League pennant. Uh, he still went deepish into that game, but couldn't generate any swing and miss. And Jordan Montgomery this season for both St. Louis and the Texas Rangers, he was very good. And for the complete season here, at 32 starts, Jordan Montgomery had a 4.3 war. He pitched 188 innings. Not a big strikeout guy, but not a big walk guy either. His ERA was 3.20. He He's 31. He'll be entering his age 31 season for 2024. He's going to be a pretty popular target of free agency, Jim. And uh, he's my top guy in my upcoming offseason plan project. Spoiler alert. So Jordan Montgomery... 
trick or treat for the White Sox? Treats on the talent. Uh, I think the only question I have is like independent of him. Like will the White Sox, when the White Sox are good, will Montgomery also be good or what they're paying? Because, you know, my concern, and this is where Andrew Benintendi comes back into play, is like while Benintendi, like the contract isn't terrible, it's kind of terrible for the White Sox because like if they don't spend and you have that like 15 million on the books when Benintendi is like, um, at the end of the line with the White Sox, we saw like the White Sox not spend past like Adam LaRoche's last year in the deal. And then it turns out LaRoche retired anyway. We saw like Yasmani Grandal last of, year of his deal restrain the White Sox spending. Like the White Sox, you know, Jerry Reinsdorf does not believe in spending past the last year of like a, a free agent deal. Like Dallas Keuchel, same thing. Like we're just like, he's just kind of there. And so like Montgomery, by the time the White Sox are good, Will he be good to warrant the contract he gets? Will they make the best use of like the first two years? And I think, you know, looking at his numbers, like he doesn't strike me as Dallas Keuchel in terms of like his velocity. He had, he had a big jump in his velocity. Uh, he's not just somebody who's getting by and smoke and mirrors and like 80 mile per hour or 89 mile per hour sinkers. Like his velocity is ticking up and the sinker is getting more power. So I like the talent. I just wonder, you know, and, and part of it was watching him, labor a little bit he's up to 220 innings this year when you factor in regular season and postseason innings he might be feeling that a little bit otherwise pretty healthy like he's made he's somebody who makes every start every year and uh you know pitches 150 to 180 innings you like that so i like the talent i just want to know what else the white Sox have in mind but treats uh on the individual level and the rest of it is just how good can the white Sox be and how quickly Following up on Jordan Montgomery, because I think he's a treat. The contract that I think is going to take to sign Jordan Montgomery, especially with how well he's pitched both in the postseason and during the regular season, is one similar to that Robbie Ray signed with the Seattle Mariners. They're totally two different. I mean, Robbie Ray, big strikeout guy, and he only made one start in 2023 before getting hurt, but he signed that five-year, $115 million contract with the Seattle Mariners after his big year with the Toronto Blue Jays. And I'm I'm feeling similar with Jordan Montgomery here because, again, he is 31 years old. Teams have not been afraid to signing starting pitchers well into their mid or late 30s. I mean, we talked about Max Scherzer not that long ago. He's in his 40s, and he's going to be the highest-paid player so far in 2024. We'll see what Shohei Otani signs for. So I'm thinking, like, it's going to be five years more than $100 million to sign Jordan Montgomery. Do you think I'm I'm on target there or off base? It's given the depth of the pitching market. Like it strikes me as like maybe a touch high, but not unrealistically. So like he, okay. especially the way he's pitched and the way he's pitched for a uh, world series team and being a driving reason why the Rangers have been as good. Like that can boost a guy's market unrealistically. We saw it like Zach Wheeler, somebody who, you know, the final deal he ended up getting uh, five for 120, and the White Sox went to five, or was it five for 118? And the White Sox went for five and 125, and he chose the Phillies. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, supposedly. Um, that was everybody thought that was too high or just like surprising. So I can see him being somebody who benefits from being a favorite of the marketplace. Like, my initial contract to go to before this last push was Taiwan Walker, like four for 72 in that range, and that strikes me as too low. So Maybe you have the high end, I have the low end, and maybe something in between, like five or 90 might be something uh, more along the lines. But I could see him like being the guy who gets the, wow, he got that much 
just based on him being him making some strides that uh, both pitching coaches and team analysts like, and then feeling like he's got the durability to back mm-hmm. it up and also the big game performances and like, say like not having his best up, but gutting through it and, and giving the Rangers enough. If the, if Merrill Kelly just wasn't better in that given day. Yeah. I just like Jordan Montgomery's a target for the white Sox because he's opposite of Dylan cease, right? Dylan cease is your strikeout artist, but cease more times than not is going to gas out of the fifth or sixth innings. Montgomery consistently could get you into the sixth inning, reach the seventh inning. The White Sox could use that type of dependable starting arm. Kind of the antithesis of, of Dylan Cease and, and a good balance, especially with how many left-handed bats there are, especially in the American League Central. I, I do think the White Sox should think about getting a left-handed starting pitcher to help out against those, uh, especially in those series against division opponents. So, uh, yeah, that's why I think Jordan Montgomery is a treat for the White Sox. We'll see how much he signs. I I do agree with you, though, Jim. I might be a bit high. Blake Snell and Aaron Nola, I am expecting those two to sign bigger contracts than Jordan Montgomery. Uh, But Jordan Montgomery will not be cheap uh, this upcoming offseason. Two guys that might actually fit more into the White Sox spending habits. Let's go with the Minnesota Twins starting pitcher entering free agency, Kenta Maeda is a free agent and Maeda for the Minnesota twins. He had a solid season, one and a half war. He pitched a little more than a hundred innings. He dealt with some injuries as well. And even though he doesn't throw very hard, that splitter still generates some strikeouts as he had a K per night higher than 10 on the season. Uh, lots of fly balls though. He's 35 years old. Jim trick or treat on Kenta Maeda. Well, uh, based on my own personal biases, which is like Hiroshima Carp guy, like they're my uh, NPB team, like, sure, sign him. It'd be fun. Um, <laughs> so like treat on that level, like he's somebody who requires certain management, just like he doesn't necessarily go deep into games. He's had some uh, injury issues, although like the biggest one is in the past. He seems to have completely rebounded from uh, Tommy John surgery. So there's that. Um but he was part of like the twins approach of having guys like not having like Jake Odorizzi when they signed him, like the West Johnson approach of just like five innings is all we need. Sonny Gray was along the same lines. Like we don't really want our pitchers facing a third time through, or we have a certain you know, amount of pitches they can throw before they get there. And so like when he was good, he was good, but also sometimes he contributed to like the, the twin starters not going long enough. And if you need innings from your starting pitching, like that's where I'm a little bit conflicted in my ADA. I like how he gets strikeouts. I like how he seldom gets like crushed and he's very good at like um, avoiding trouble or dodging jams, leaving runners aboard. And that seems to be a strength of his. So like, I like the pitcher, but we saw Pedro Grafol, like his motive is just going 90 to hundred pitches, uh, 110 pitches, no matter what, like, you know, he, every Lance Lynn start, like he had to run into trouble. Lucas, you know, kind of the same thing. Dylan Cease, like, you know, was every start was hundred, 110 pitches. And like Maeda doesn't seem to be that guy. So like, what can Griffol adjust? Can Ethan Katz, uh, you know, I guess, you know, how much of that is Griffol? How much of that is Ethan Katz? Like preferring his pitchers to go that way or like being okay with it, running along with it. Like, I think it requires Griffol to change the way he's managed pitchers and uh, will 
he be flexible enough to accommodate like somebody like Maeda who like maybe is like five to six innings each start uh, because there are some like Cease has no durability issues. It's just more a matter of like how efficient he is. Whereas Maeda does seem like they handle him with kid gloves here and they're both with the Dodgers and the twins uh, in order to get him through a full six month season. I think made as a treat on a one-year contract as he maybe wants to prove to his market or still proves that he's a starting pitcher because you are right, Jim. I could see teams look at him as a six starter, kind of a swing man kind of guy. Now does Maeda want to still chase for a championship reign? Uh, or does he still want to be known as a starting pitcher in the major leagues? If he wants to be a starting pitcher, the White Sox have a job for him. <laughs> they yeah. have that opportunity for him to still be a, a starting pitcher. So I, I do think that would be a treat for the White Sox, even though he do, he goes about it in a different way. It's not big fastball type of stuff from Kenta Maeda, uh, but he still does a very good job, especially against righties and generating whiffs. Presents like one opportunity that the White Sox have and like maybe the one luxury they have in their position, which is one being able to provide starts and innings for a guy who wants to prove he's a starter. And also if you don't think they're going to be in the running, like Maida could land up or he could land with a contender in the second half. Like he might have the ability to, if not pick his destination, like I don't know if the White Sox would have like a no trade clause for a guy in a one-year contract or any kind of no trade protection. Uh, But for a guy like Maida, like he wouldn't be traded to like another second division team uh, over the course of the year. So like he'd only go to a better situation probably in terms of wins, losses, where they are in the standing. So like he could spend the first half, like getting the starts he wants, getting the innings he wants, getting the five day or six day routine that he has always wanted even with the Dodgers and with the twins. And then hope by the second half that like the Orioles come calling or, or some team that needs a start in the second half. And so he gets the best of both worlds, which is money and starts. And then uh, hopefully by August and September, like pitching meaningful games, even if they aren't with the White Sox. And the last one on our list, another starting pitcher pitched great against the White Sox this year when he was with the Detroit Tigers and had a good start with the Philadelphia Phillies. And then kind of faded as the season ended, wasn't that much of a factor for the Phillies in the postseason, and that is Michael Lorenzen. And the way that he was pitching, Jim, I thought, okay, this is going to be a White Sox target this upcoming offseason. And then he pitched really well for Philadelphia. Oh, he's not going to be cheap enough for the White Sox to sign. And then that fade has me a bit concerned here. And Lorenzen, not a big strikeout guy. His strikeout per nine, well below seven. At six and a half, he pitched 153 innings this year, finished with a 1.7 war, a 4.18 ERA. He'll be 32 years old coming to this season. Trick or treat for the White Sox with Michael Lorenzen. Depends on the standards. Like treat for where the White Sox are. Like if they signed him to be like another starter, like say they signed a Montgomery and then a Lorenzen, like great. Uh, Or if they signed Maeda and Lorenzen, like if he were a second starter, signed over the course of the winter, that would be a treat because you're getting durability. You're getting innings. They might not be great innings, but he's better than any incumbent currently available to take on starts opening day. And he provides a layer that you can block like a Nick Nestrini with. And, but also like he's somebody who isn't that so good that if Nestrini comes out of the gate, like firing, uh, or is like a Davis Martin situation to where like numbers at Charlotte aren't that good, but you like the stuff and figure once he gets out of truest field, like he'll be pitching just fine at the major league level. 
like Lorenzen isn't established enough to where you can't move him to the bullpen or long relief work or swingman work and getting a streamy in there. So I like Lorenzen from that uh, aspect. I just don't like him as like a problem solver or like somebody you can count on flipping at the deadline for somebody meaningful. Like I think that was the opportunity last year and like they signed Clevenger and like Clevenger pitched fine around all the uh, stuff. That's not fun to talk about. Like, but like, you know, Lorenzen pitched like a little bit better just because the durability was there. Like he made every start, whereas, uh, you know, Clevenger missed time, but like they were on the same plane and then a regression eventually kicked in for Lorenzen and like, turns out like, Oh, he's not an all-star after all. Uh, he's not a no hit pitcher after all, or like, that's not what you can expect from him. He's more of a fourth, fifth starter, like somebody who can, uh, you know, won't make a postseason start for a postseason team, but over the course of 162 games, you'll appreciate him being around and throwing 150 innings. I think that's why, like if the white Sox sign him, like looking to solve a problem, it'll be a trick. But if they look at him as a supplemental starter, you know, good enough treat. Yeah. I, I, he can't be your premier pitcher that you signed yeah. this off season. <laughs> he, he needs to be part of multiple guys that you signed. If you just signed Michael Lorenzen and that was it for your off season, that's that off season is enough. Like it, it would just be enough. Who do you, who did you trade? Did you trade Dylan cease? Did you trade Luis Rob? Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> your opening day starters, Michael Lorenzen now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I'm with you. I, I think as like the second starting pitcher that you sign or maybe a third starting pitcher that you sign this offseason, I think Michael Lorenzen is fine. Uh, but if he's your best guy that you sign, yeah, that's where it's going to be a, a trick. He's not going to help out too much in the starting rotation, at least from the perspective of trying to win or be competitive in 2024. If you're trying to be... Take it to the bottom again for the 2024. Yeah, sure. Yeah, Lorenzo can help you in that regard, especially if you do trade someone like Dylan Cease. But that's it, folks. That's it uh, with our trick-or-treating uh, for these types of targets. Again, uh, be interested to see what you guys think as far as trick-or-treat with these list of free agents and players. And uh, again, keep coming with the off-season plan projects. We're having a lot of fun reading them and going through them as far as the providing feedback in the comment section at socksmachine.com. You can still submit yours. So just go to the website, copy and paste the template and we'll get that posted for you guys on the website, but that will do it for this episode of the socks machine podcast. We all hope that you have a wonderful Halloween. Jim and I will be back later this week with a new podcast episode. If you just discovered the socks machine podcast, you, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Spotify and Apple music. You could also follow us on social media. We're on all the social media platforms now at socks machine. Uh, you could also follow me there as well at socks machine underscore Josh. We upload all of our podcasts into our YouTube channel as well so if you want to watch us on youtube you can at youtube.com slash socks machine if you enjoy our work and you want more you can get more by becoming a patreon supporter at patreon.com slash socks machine where our patreon supporters get exclusive content and they also get ad-free versions of both the podcast and website we have the socks machine town hall presentation coming in early november just for our patreon supporters so again if you have been listening to us or reading socks machine for a long time or you're brand new and you like our work and you want more you get more just sign up at patreon.com slash socks machine the socks machine podcast is a production of SocksMachine.com. you're over all things chicago white Sox baseball and part of the blue wire podcast network alongside jim margulis i'm josh nelson thanks for listening and watching you
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.